Hello, and welcome to episode 25 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. I am Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Listeners, if you're not familiar with Carl's work, he is a prolific tennis podcaster with the 30 Love podcast. I know he's released a couple just in the last week, and there's plenty more to come, so I hope you'll check that out. As for me, I'm trying to write a little bit more on the Tennis Abstract blog, so if you are curious about the ranking trajectory of Mihaela Buzarnescu, which, I mean, who isn't, then you can find out more about that that I published a few days ago. Um, we're in the middle of a pretty busy time on the tennis calendar, with Madrid wrapping up yesterday and the Rome Masters and Rome Premier already underway and two weeks away from Roland Garros, so right in the heat of the clay court season. And Carl, one of the big topics over the last week or two is the the status of number one on both the ATP and WTA sides. And on the WTA side, the big story is that Simona Halep has retained number one now without much much of anything in the way of noteworthy accomplishments. I mean, she, she won an international at the beginning of 2018, but she failed to defend her Madrid title. So she's got this one small title to her name while she's still number one. Uh, it's, a, it's a small margin above Caroline Wozniacki, but number one nonetheless. And on the men's side, uh, because Rafael Nadal lost in the quarters in Madrid, he lost number one to Roger Federer. And of course, Roger Federer is spending this whole clay court season on the sidelines. So, Carl, let's let's start with talking about Halep. It's easy to, to look at her resume and say this is a weak number one. Do you think that do you think this is a flaw in the ranking system or just just a weird sort of historical accident? Do you think she's a weak number one? Um, where, where do you stand on this? Well, first of all, I think we're comparing number ones on the women's side to Serena Williams. She's been the dominant player overall of the last 20 years. And I don't mean by that she's dominated throughout those 20 years, but she's just been such an overwhelming force in the sport for that period has the resume to make a really, really, really strong claim for the best player of all time. And for so many of the recent years until her pregnancy, she was a dominant number one as well. And dominant in a very particular way of pretty much if she was showing up to a tournament and not withdrawing after a couple of matches, in other words, showing up to play and to win, she was winning at a really high rate, especially at the Grand Slams. Yeah, and Carl, I just I just saw a stat on Twitter a few days ago that Serena's winning percentage in finals over her career is like 78%. I mean, just outrageous. Yeah, and I think it's, it's higher at, at slam finals and semis. It's sort of like the stats you would see for Nadal, but just on clay, that's Serena overall. And it's not even that Serena necessarily, I mean, Serena was, was just as good in the earlier rounds. It's not that she was better in the earlier rounds, which you would normally expect, but she was just as good too. So it's really something that we're not going to see. We're unlikely to see anybody else match anything like that kind of dominance. I also think you gave Halep somewhat short shrift. I mean, you made it sound like she won one tournament this year and that's it, but Right after she won Shenzhen, she made the final of the Australian Open and lost 6-4 in the third set. So, you know, that's a pretty great result. Of course, for her, it's disappointing because it's her third slam final and her third loss. But she's also done quite a bit since then. She made the semis in Doha. She made the semis in Indian Wells. She's, she's done what we've talked about on many shows. I think we talked about it last week as well, where she's 
had consistent results that are about quarterfinal or semifinal level. And therefore, it seems like she hasn't accomplished much. Whereas if she'd won a couple of tournaments and then lost first rounds everywhere else, that could be overall just as strong an output. But in terms of ranking points, in terms of prize money, and in terms of our awareness of someone's success, and certainly in terms of someone's sereneness of, of winning semis and finals, it doesn't look like a number one. Yeah, that, that's certainly true. And in an era like, I mean, maybe era is too strong of a word, but in our current time period on the women's side, like there, it's there's so many players who are competitive but not dominant that if it wasn't Halep with her one international title and some other good results being number one, it would be someone else with an iffy resume for number one. I think it, it's just easy to caricature it a little bit because it is just that one title regardless of how many other good wins and finals and semifinals she has I mean, for for a certain type of fan what matters is titles and either you have them or you don't and right now she doesn't have them um yeah i think it's a funny way of looking at tennis i i don't disagree that there are fans out there who look at it that way i think the equivalent and maybe the reason some people look at it that way and the people we're aware of as a couple of american tennis fans are people who look at let's say the nba and say well it doesn't matter how many games you win in the regular season it's about titles but there are so many titles available all year including four at the grand slam level that putting a priority on final matches one week when the semifinal the next week at a bigger event could be bigger and when the sport just is built where you're going to lose most weeks and then move on to the next week, it's just not built that way. There, there is no one single season and one single title that everyone is playing for so they can deprioritize. And the very nature of the ranking system that we all accept as the determinant of number one, even if there are better ways of calculating it out there like ELO, the very nature of it is based on ranking points and you get ranking points for every win you get whatever round it's in. So I, I don't think we're ever going to convince anyone that Halep is the clear number one because of your point about titles. But I just find it to be an odd way to look at tennis. It is. And, yeah. And, and since you mentioned ELO, um, it, it's interesting to think about the two systems next to each other. That, Like you were saying, it's an odd way to look at tennis just to think about who's winning finals. And ELO takes that out entirely. I mean, ELO is just about... Like who you're beating and how good they are, not when it is, where it is, any of that stuff. And Halep is, depending on how you look at Serena and Sharapova, Halep's pretty much number one in ELO as well. So having that sort of consistent but not not title-ridden resume, that's that's going to tend to look better in ELO. And if, if you trust that as being a better indicator of future results and so on, then that sort of resume actually means you're a better player than someone who... I don't know, let, let's imagine Ostapenko had won the U.S. Open as well, and Ostapenko held two slams right now. She might be number one with two slams, but I think it would be a stretch to say she's a better player in the sense that she's more likely to win her next match or her next title. So it, just to your point, that it, it, it's a weird way of looking at tennis to say that the, the titles are what really matters. Yeah, and I think you also brought up a really strong point before, which is... This, this argument sounds familiar. We've talked about this with, let's say, Dinara Safina. But at the time, we had a Serena Williams who wasn't number one, but seemed like number one, was number one in ELO if ELO had existed or if we back-calculated it, would have been expected to beat Safina. Whereas right now, 
Halep is number one, no matter how you look at it. There is, if she weren't number one, someone else would have to be. And it's not obvious who would be. So it makes this a really different conversation. I think this one is much more about we have a really even field. So she's not number one by much. And the other players have almost as good a claim. And if you emphasize titles more, maybe a better claim. But it's really close. But that's a very different situation than, well, because of the way the ranking system is constructed and the way this player has scheduled, she's number one, but only for those reasons. Yeah. To, to flip the, the usual script about as far as I possibly can, setting aside ELO and all that stuff, I've been thinking a little lately about about our sense of what makes a great player. Because I've, I've been watching some 70s Grand Slam finals and some some late 80s and early 90s women's matches. And... I'm fascinated when, just personally, when I'm watching a match and it seems wrong that a player even loses points or gets broken or something. And I think every fan has that feeling sometimes. It depends on your preferences, of course, but maybe you watch Roger Federer and just can't believe that he's getting broken because it's it's Roger Federer. He looks, he looks like he should never have his serve broken or lose his set. If you watch Nadal on clay, I mean, it's, it's funny to say this a few days after he lost to Dominic Thiem, but watching Nadal on clay, you have the same feeling. I mean you realize it's logically possible for him to lose, but it doesn't really seem right. And watching Steffi Graf feels exactly the same way. Watching Bjorn Borg, I think, in, in the 70s, it would have felt the same way. It just doesn't seem right that these guys will lose. And to your point that back in the Denara Safina number one days, it, it wasn't Safina who gave anybody that feeling. I mean, probably not even Safina's parents were thinking, oh, Denara can't lose. It was Serena who gave everyone that impression. And like you say, there's no one there like that at that level on the WTA right now. And on clay anyway, to me, that's Simona. I mean, maybe that's my personal bias because I'm known to be a little bit of a Simona Halep fan. But watching her on clay, it doesn't really seem right that someone is able to to win enough points against her to win a match. I'm not sure I would feel quite that strongly about her on other surfaces. But she might be the closest thing we have right now to someone who's who just looks like She's a dominant player, even if the, the results don't quite bear that out. So what do you make of, and, and this is not to undermine our, basically our consensus that she is number one in, in every respect. She's got two losses on clay, and they were blowout losses to Coco Vandewey and Karolina Pliskova, two power players in Stuttgart and Madrid. And... I'm just wondering what you make of those, other than those that didn't feel right, or, or those are two really tough opponents. Well, I think Pliskova played really, really well in that Madrid match, and I, I think she said something similar after the match that it was the, the best she'd ever played on clay, and yeah, she she was really solid. It didn't, it, it wasn't a bad performance from Halep. I don't think it just wasn't good enough. Like if that had been the final, I think it would have been a very satisfying final. Although the Kvitova Burton's match was was a, an excellent final as well. Um, Vandeweghe, I'm not so sure about. I think that court was it was playing pretty fast. The fact that it's indoors changes things a little bit. And I mean, I I was shocked by that. I don't know. I don't know quite what to make of of Halep losing to Vandeweghe on clay, especially since Coco didn't even really want to be there in the first place, and and quite vocally doesn't enjoy playing on clay. So the American way. Yeah, the American way. So I, I yeah I I kind of have to take a pass on that because I I just don't know what to think. I mean, I, I watched the match and it, it didn't really feel that much like a clay court match. I mean, Van de Wey served really well and that was good enough. I mean, I think on, on her best day, Halep could have 
won that match anyway, but it was pretty far from that. So it, it went the other way. I mean, the, the real test, I think, will be these next couple tournaments. I mean, obviously, Roland Garros is huge for, uh, for her, just as a test of her level and as an indicator of whether she'll remain number one because she has the finalist points to defend, but also she's a defending finalist, I believe, in Rome, where she lost to Svitolina last year. So if, if she does the same thing this year, like makes both finals or maybe makes a semi and wins one or the other, then I, I think that that'll make us forget about a, a, a weird loss to Vandeweghe. But maybe there maybe there's another issue there. If, if she does have an early exit in one of these two tournaments, that would almost definitely knock her out of number one, assuming that somebody else played well uh, in the meantime. But... Uh, it would also make us think maybe maybe she's not the best player even on clay on tour right now, or, or maybe she's at least leaving the door open for someone else. I have a very specific Simona question since we're going all in on number one and since you are such a fan, but also because I think this maybe taps into our interest in the tactical and statistical side of the sport. She won 28% of second serve points against Karolina Pliskova, and I shouldn't make too much of one match. Overall, she wins almost half of her second serve points, which is pretty good, although maybe not as good as someone who's as good of a defender and and rallier as she is, maybe not as good as it could be. And she hits very few double faults. She um, hit no double faults in two of her Madrid matches and hit double faults on 5% of her second serve points. Um, Is the double fault percentage on TennisAbstract.com of all points or second serve points? All points. Of, of all serves? It's of all, okay, got it. Yep. Um, I'm just wondering if you think, you know, one of the criticisms of, of Halep as a number one and maybe as a dominant number one is that she doesn't, that she can be blown off the court by someone who is not as good as her overall but is more aggressive. And I'm wondering if you think she could stand to hit more double faults. I mean, not just for the sake of hitting double faults, but if she could take more risk, hit closer to the line, or hit with more variety, more speed, more spin, and therefore hit more double faults, but also maybe win more points. Do you, do you think that she's getting the balance right, either on the serve or in her game in general, given her tools, given she's 5'6"? Well, it's a, it's a really good question, and I'm sure it's one that Darren Cahill has thought a lot about, uh, and they've probably discussed. So I, I know that after the Sharapova loss at the U.S. Open last year, uh, Cahill was very upfront and told Halep that it was basically serving badly that was the problem. And since then, Simona has improved her first serve at least somewhat. It looked very good on hard courts in the beginning of the season. Um, I'm not sure it's been quite as good on clay, but maybe she hasn't been trying for quite as much on, on clay the last month or so. The second serve, you're right, it, it doesn't look better. It's definitely her weak point. Um, players can tee off on it, especially someone like Pliskova, who can make an entire strategy out of just bombing other her opponent's second serves. Uh, the question always is, like, what exactly the trade-off is? I mean, it's, it's a cop-out of an answer, I know, but I don't know... I don't know how much better it could be without like I don't know what her options are short of just hitting more first serves because she it does seem to be affected somewhat by uh, by mental factors that she loses confidence in her serve especially in her second serve so she'll she'll just fall back on just rolling in a second serve even though she's got to know that with Karolina Pliskova or somebody like that on the other side of the net that's not a good a very smart thing to do we're not very likely to turn into points one but 
but I, I don't know what the what the options are. I guess um, it's it's always nice to think about a player who can take a different approach. Maybe, like you say, maybe add more spin or get a little closer to the lines. But I'm not sure. I, mean, I, I feel like the the first serve improvement is still enough of a temporary thing that we're hoping will stick. That maybe trying more on the second serve would could could end up costing her more than it will will gain her. I mean, it, maybe she's a bit like Diego Schwartzman in that she doesn't worry that much about getting broken because she know she she knows she can just break right back. Um, I, I haven't looked at the numbers, but I, I would guess she she gets broken. I mean, probably at least once a set. Uh, at least in, in reasonably competitive matches, but she can always come back and, and break anybody else, except for maybe Plushkova on a good day. So maybe that's her thought. Maybe she just doesn't worry about it that much. But, and I mean, th- there's definitely room for improvement. It's just a question of whether physically that's an option for her. And I, I don't have the answer to that question. Yeah, and I think that also raises, for her and Schwartzman, an idea that we've talked about, which is you may get a lot more out of making your strength even stronger and if her strength is the return game then then maybe maybe that's that's worth more of an investment but i know we have a lot more to talk about even though we could probably just call this the halop cast so um should we move on to some other players in wta's head yeah well we've been talking about pliskova and uh, mm-hmm. let's let's stick with her for a little bit because it's probably been a couple of years now since she's been pretty firmly in the number one conversation i think she she was one of the six or seven or whatever number ones last year for a brief time so she's she's six or seven number one contenders we never actually (laughs) didn't we have that many number ones last year like six oh you mean who at one point got it yep yep she was one of them that's right yes so so she's been there she hasn't won the slam yet um so she's is that that's right she's she's still slamless but she's been in the final uh she's she's definitely always a threat and really on I don't know, every surface. She hasn't had much success on grass, but there's no real good reason for that. So she's someone who you, you figure as a likely quarterfinalist or semifinalist at pretty much every tournament she enters. And in, in until this year, the exception was clay, but she played really well in Stuttgart. She played well in Madrid, upsetting Simona Halep and then losing to Kvitova, who went on to win the tournament. And so, even last year, she made the semis at the French. There you go. So it... it the surface isn't holding her back. Um, Madrid can feel like an exception sometimes because it does play faster than other clay courts and maybe Stuttgart as well. Like I was saying about Vandewey, it's indoor and seemed to play play pretty fast this year. But like you say, when Roland Garros semifinal last year, she's she can play even on slower clay surfaces. And it's conceivable that she could be number one even without a good clay court season. So the fact that she's all of a sudden a threat on every clay court event really changes the math there. Um, do you think, Carl, that she's... Is she someone who could not... I mean, we know she could get to number one since she's done it, but do you think she's someone who could you know, really grab onto number one and be the dominant player for a year or two? Yeah, I mean, I think she's another player. A lot of the, the current players have this sort of curse of consistency of results. I think if she won a couple of big titles, even if that were accompanied by some inconsistency, she could grab hold. We're not talking about a lot of points separating these top players, and we're also not talking about uh, a big, a total number of points. I guess both have to be true at the same time. Like the the number of points Halep has does not add up to that amazing of a season relative to some other number ones we've seen. So I think it's it's something that's well within Pliskova's reach. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, 
And maybe I'm falling a little bit into the trap we talked about last week about uh, predicting big things for people with big games, and even if they are a little bit one-dimensional, like Nick Kyrgios on the men's side. But of the players who are in the mix as someone who could really take over number one and own it for a couple of years, she looks like the one who, who could do that. Uh, I mean, I'd like to think Simona could too, but if we're talking about people other than Simona, then Pliskova seems like a leading contender. Uh, another name, though, that it, it, it is really a big surprise if you think back to where we were a year ago is Petra Kvitova, who's now won two tournaments in a row despite a really, really quick turnaround. Uh, also someone who you, we've never really thought of as a, as a big threat on clay since her biggest achievements have been on, on the grass at Wimbledon. Uh, but watching Kvitova rack up all these wins, do you think that she could actually improve on her peak ranking and she could make it to number one? Oh, certainly I think she can make it to number one. I'm not that surprised by her win in Madrid. It's her third Madrid title. She's always done well at the high altitude with her with her big game, her ultra, ultra aggressive game. But the fact that she has gotten, I mean, she was going from a ranking when she returned last year of uh, 15, 16 in the world thereabouts. And... And I think a lot of points dropped off quickly. So she's had to really, that, that means she didn't really have the best draws. She really had to earn, and, and she was coming back, we should remind listeners, from a horrific attack on her hand that left it badly bloodied and mangled. And even when she came back at the French Open, her hand was still far from recovered. So not only was she coming back without much match play and with a tough ranking and tough draws, but with major uh, physical hurdles to overcome, and here she is, was she, she's eighth in the world, um, heading into the French Open with hardly any points to defend because that's the that was her return tournament last year and she just won one match. And the grass season coming up. And, you know, again, we, we shouldn't have to keep repeating it, but there just isn't a ton of space between the top players. I mean, right now, in terms of the live rankings, Kvitova is 2,300 points behind Wozniacki. You know, that's kind of a, a great grass season or a much better grass season away from being really close to the top. I mean, other players could, could make a difference too and, and have a good season bring them closer. But I, I could certainly see her get to number one in the next six months, and that would be a pretty incredible achievement. When you look at what she did last year, she won... Birmingham, but she only won one match at Wimbledon, and then she did almost nothing until the U.S. Open. So she has a lot of room to improve and a lot of rivals who have points dropping off. Yeah, the, the whole thing is just in, in so much flux. And one stat that I think is fascinating, I'm, I'm not going to look it up because my keyboard's really noisy, uh, so I don't want to ruin our audio. But um, <laughs> as Simona hasn't been number one for that long, it's, it's, it, it's just you know, a few months. Um, but there are not very many women who have been number one for longer. Uh, because over the course of the WTA ranking system, it's been dominated by so few people. And one, of course, is Serena, and then you've got Steffi Graf, Monica Selish, um, and Martina Navratilova and Chris Everett. And that's if you take those few women, that doesn't leave a lot of weeks for everybody else. I think that Halep is, is within a couple weeks of Maria Sharapova as number one, uh, which is kind of crazy thinking about the, the status that Sharapova 
Sharapova has in the game. Um, the point being, they're just. It, it, when you don't have a really dominant player like a Serena, then the natural state of the women's game tends to be this sort of game of hot potato where nobody wants to hold on to, or nobody can hold on to number one for very long. Um, it, it's funny that one of the, the players involved in that right now is Wozniacki, who did manage to hold on onto it for quite a long time, despite not having a slam to her name. But it looks like we could easily have another year of that where... If, if Halep isn't able to hang on to number one through the clay court season, then it could be a mix of Pliskova, maybe Kvitova, maybe Wozniacki again, and who knows, whoever else emerges, maybe Svitolina if she, she has a better French Open this year. Um, yeah, the wacky the stat there is, you know, I, I never seem to be able to get like the most up-to-date numbers, but that Wozniacki has more total weeks at number one, I think this is right, than Sharapova, Kleister's, and Venus combined. Yeah, that sounds right. It's 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 very strange thinking back to even just really one generation ago that you think of players like Venus and and Sharapova as as towering so much over the rest of the field. And I mean, in some ways they they have. I mean, there's some truth to that. But in terms of their time spent at number one, it's it's not there. And it's a some of that's just the weirdness of the ranking system, and some of it is. The fact that Serena was there so much of the time, but it it is odd. I mean, we, when we look back at at historical rankings, we tend to expect certain things that that aren't there. It's just an, an oddity of I think how we remember the the ebbs and flows of of tennis over the years. I, I think it's also a function of just how many strong players there were at the same time. I mean, Justine Ennen, one hundred and seventeen weeks, and then you had Capriati and Davenport. Davenport ninety eight weeks. I mean, that's one of the reasons Kleister's got squeezed out. Kleister's a great player who probably could have won more majors with a, with an easier field, sort of like an Andy Murray. Um, there were just a lot of, of players who are Hall of Famers competing for the same titles in the same weeks at number one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I wonder why we don't hear more about Serena's chase for the most weeks at number one. I mean, maybe she doesn't care, so no one else does, but she's... And, and I'm looking at TennisX.com, which is through January 29th, 2018, and gener- generally has been accurate when I've looked before. It says that Serena is 58 weeks behind Steffi Graf, so that's a little over a year. And granted, her return so far from having baby Alexis—excuse uh, me, <laughs> Olympia, Alexis is her husband—is— makes it makes it look less likely than it did when everyone just assumed she'd kind of march back to dominance, but— she still certainly has a chance to, and 58 weeks means over a year, which she could get by having a really great run and, and blowing away the field for a year and then, and then staying there. Certainly unlikely given her age, but I wonder if that's a motivating factor at all. We, we hear about it a lot on the men's side in terms of Federer's chase for that record over Sampras, so I just wonder if, if that's something to watch on the WTA's head. Yeah, it's, I agree. We haven't heard much about that for quite a while. The talk seems to be more about Grand Slam totals um, and Serena chasing down Steffi Graf there and then maybe also chasing down Margaret Court, I think. Um, but yeah, the big question mark is, is what happens when she, when she comes back. We were talking a little bit before we hit the record button about how when players return from long layoffs, it 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 always seems obvious in retrospect how how they will play like Nadal missed three months earlier this year, almost three months earlier this season after the Australian open. And then 
it, 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 it that's almost completely forgotten now. He, he came back on clay and boom, he's beating everybody again. Um, and then other times people will come back from a, a long layoff and never be the same again. And it kind of feels like, yeah, we, we knew that. Like Djokovic, mm, it seemed like it was his time. When, of course, before Djokovic hit this tailspin, people were thinking of him as, you know, a lock to win the next 10 Grand Slams or something. So it, it's good to have another a player like Serena out there right now who really we don't know what to expect. We've seen her, her lose some matches that she would normally win in her really brief attempted to come back now she's she's skipping at least some of the clay season maybe it'll end up being the whole clay season but it seems like the range of possibilities for her at Roland Garros are you know a clumsy first round loss right up to a title and, and her coach just gave an interview or something yesterday saying that she that he thinks that Serena could win Roland Garros and of course that's what you say as a coach especially especially if you like PR as much as he does but what do you think, Carl? I mean, if you had to put the odds on Serena winning Roland Garros right now, where would you put them? Oh, geez. Um, 8%? 8%. Okay. Yeah. Would you, where would that rank her among the other favorites, do you think? Like, did, it, would, that, would that make her fourth favorite, maybe? I was going to say, like, fifth or sixth. Okay. Yeah. I mean, sounds- I think that the, the top percentages are going to be pretty evenly spread. Uh, Halep, you just put as a firm favorite, but even then I, I couldn't see Halep having a chance more than 20, maybe? Yeah, 20 sounds right to me. So maybe eight is a little high, but I, I just, the wild card of Serena at a slam, and I know I say this all the time, uh, but I don't think I have in a while, but there, there always seems to me to be the potential for a player who's great, let alone a player who is the all-time great, to play into a tournament, but especially at a slam. I mean, she could have a very tough draw right away. I think that's the biggest risk to to the pr- prediction is just that in the first couple of rounds, she plays Halep and she's not ready. But, or, you know, when I say Halep as in like Halep. But I really think there's there's so many weak players and easy draws at slams relatively i mean these players are among the best in the world at their craft and i don't want to sound insulting but relative to something like rome or madrid where it's a much smaller draw i think there's much more potential for an all-time great to to play into form yeah i mean i i, I agree I, I suspect that that's where, we, where you're going with that and it, it's interesting how these different topics kind of end up merging is because there's so many competitive if not dominant people in the field right now i think that makes it less likely that someone like serena is going to play her way into a tournament because mm. if, if you just think of the you know the the kiki burtons out there who she could end up being a fourth round opponent for halep at the at roland garros or, or rome even um, I mean, Burton's is playing. She drew Karolina Pliskova in the in the second round in Rome, which is pretty harsh given how good both of them are playing. But I I, I think I, I could come up with twenty five players who we would agree would be pretty dangerous to someone like Serena on the comeback trail, and the odds aren't that good that she's going to miss all of them. I mean, of course, she has a chance against any of them. But if you think of the people lurking, like the Burtons and Naomi Osaka and maybe even Victoria Azarenka and Maria Sharapova, who also won't even be seated, uh, it's kind of crazy to imagine a Serena Sharapova first-rounder at Roland Garros. Um, but there, there are, there is a lot of danger there. And it, it's very different from 
I'm I'm already disagreeing with myself to saying this, but it's very different than someone like Djokovic showing up at Roland Garros. I think Djokovic could play his way in much much easier than Serena could. But I say that knowing that his his performance so far hasn't really justified my faith in him. Um, but but yeah, it, it does depend a lot on the draw. And Serena in the second week of Roland Garros is. Like the odds might start doing strange things. I'm not. I, I'm not sure how strongly I agree with you about the eight percent. That seems pretty high to me. But if she's in yeah, the I'm court, pretty sure you don't agree with me, which is cool. <laughs> more interesting. But if if she's in, if she finds herself in the quarterfinals and she's let's let's say she's beaten Kiki Burton's along the way or someone like that, then her her odds are going to be proportionally higher i think she will evaluate her more as the serena of the past and less as the person who hasn't played a competitive match in a year and a half well <laughs> she's played some competitive matches but yeah she hasn't she hasn't played many i i you've persuaded me and i think 8% would have been a more reasonable prediction for wimbledon because we are talking about the weakest her weakest of the four majors which still means she's been the best player at that major or, or one of the two or three best players at that major during her career. Um, I, I do think the, the 25 players you mentioned also make it possible to have a draw kind of open up, which could help her. But it also means that she could face really tough first couple of matches. I am just excited that I know that her coach loves PR, but I, I'm excited that he thinks this is good PR to have. Like, I, I'm excited to hear Serena hype is, I guess, what I'm saying, because that makes me excited for the French Open. So you, you've mentioned Wimbledon as a better target for your 8%. And a big factor, if we were to be setting odds on Serena at Wimbledon, a really important thing to know would be how she's going to be seated. I mean, that, that would hugely affect her potential draws. And there's been this sort of sputtering of news coming out of the All England Club that one day they were saying that she wouldn't be seated because they only re-rank the they reserve the right to re-rank the top 32 ranked players or reseed them rather um, but then they realized that that's their deal with ATP and not with the WTA so if i have this right the latest news is the the club could seed serena conceivably anywhere they want and if they she could she could reap the benefits of their grass court formula. Um, I have I haven't read anything about anyone crunching the numbers on that and seeing where she might land if they did that, but it 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 would really change I think her chances because if they did that, then you know they'd have some very strong results. They were basing it on she could maybe even land herself in the top ten seeds, um, which. I think leads me to a bigger question, which is if you have someone who's basically a year and a half out of competition, except for a couple matches back, um, do you think you should, I think we all agree that coming back from pregnancy, you you should have the protected ranking to get you into the tournament. You shouldn't have to play qualifying or come back through ITFs or something, but should you be seated? So, I mean, I guess my specific question, Carl, is do you think that Serena should be seated at Wimbledon? And if so, where do you think she should be seated? I, first of all, just think this matters so much less than getting in that I don't get too bothered either way. Like, I don't actually have that strong an opinion. But because of that, I think because players seem to take so much importance from this, and and it's not to say that seeding doesn't matter, and you've done some great work that shows it does, but 
the first thing is you have to get into the tournament and things like wild cards that go to players from favored nations who have not earned their way in i mean that really boils my blood much more than where what advantages players get in the draw i i say let's not risk any disrespect to the all-time great and give her a great seed i also think it's to the benefit of the tournament. I mean, yeah, she could lose early, but top seeds lose early at slams all the time, and we don't even know that means that it was an unearned seed. So I would give her a pretty high seed. Uh, I mean, I think it's it's a little risky because you open the door. You, there's slippery slope arguments that could be made. Okay, you've, you've given her a high seed. What about for other players? But you can shut those down pretty quickly by saying there is no player, certainly no active player who is in the same conversation as Serena Williams and certainly not in terms of achievements at Wimbledon. So I'd be pretty generous. I guess you're asking me for a specific number. I think I would go top eight, maybe even top four. Interesting. Uh, I've been thinking about this quite a bit lately because I am working on fixing my ELO ratings to handle people taking long layoffs. One of the, kind of annoying things about using my ELO ratings for like, at least the last year has been there are so many formerly great players who are have been out of competition or are still out of competition for various reasons, thinking about Djokovic, Murray, Sharapova, Azarenka, Serena, um, Stan Wawrinka, and a few others. And the way that ELO handles that is to just ignore the fact that they're gone and they, their, rank, their ratings just stay the same, which is clearly wrong. I mean, obviously, if, if you have a player who misses a year, whether it's a suspension or pregnancy or injury, then they're not going to come back the same player. I mean, if they're lucky, they'll, they'll do what Roger Federer did at the Australian Open and play just as well as they had when they, when they left. If they're really unlucky, it'll be, you know, completely different. But on average, there's going to be a drop-off. On the flip side, you have the the ATP and WTA ranking systems, which err in the other direction. And if you're gone for a year, you're just you're just out of the rankings, which is what happened to Sharapova. She came back with zero ranking points, and uh, the, a number of players are close to that, even if they're not going to actually hit zero. Murray's going to be out for nearly a year. Vavrinka is going to miss the better part of a year. Uh, even Djokovic coming back with his ranking out of the top ten. It, 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 the, the official ranking system seemed to work on the premise that it would be better to have someone be ranked under where they could perform than the other way around. Whereas my, my unstated and unthought through ELO assumption is the opposite, that we should assume someone is, is, is better than maybe they'll end up coming back playing. Um, and it sounds like where you're coming from, Carl, with Serena is... Yeah, I mean, she she was great. We don't know if she is great now, but let's err on the side of assuming she still is, or at least treat her as if she still is. But it seems like the consensus in the sport is the opposite, to treat people as if they're, they need to prove themselves again. Um, when you were talking, you mentioned in passing the, the, of potential slippery slope arguments and kind of brushed that off as... Uh, as not applying because Serena's in a class by herself. What were you thinking of as the the slippery slope dangers there of of having players have, you know, let's just say, sticky long-term rankings or seedings? Well, I was thinking we've had a lot of players in the sport recently who've been out for a while 
and who could make the case for keeping uh, their seeds for a while. I was really rejecting it just because I get that people get bent out of shape about these these seeding arguments, and I rather than having a much broader one, especially ahead of a slam in Wimbledon that starts in a month and a half, I was trying to think of sort of a way to deal with the most important question, which is what to do with Serena Williams at Wimbledon, instead of what to do with the bigger question of these um, these seeds for players who've been out a while. But yeah, I just I, I'm I'm on I'm with I like the approach that you're taking, especially because I just don't see an enormous cost here. I guess what the cost is to the players who have stayed on tour and who have been have been fighting it out week after week. I guess I just feel a lot of compassion for the players who have week after week been trying to get back on tour and how hard that is. And also that we have a lot of evidence that they are still they are still very likely in aggregate to be great. Yeah, and I wrote a, what ended up being a really long post about this a couple of months ago, whether Serena should be seated. And I, I, one of the things I came up with was if we did agree, I mean, this is a huge if, it'll, it'll never happen, but if we did agree on what the what the typical um, layoff penalty was or the, the rating decay or whatever you want to call it, if we were to say that the average player uh, comes back 150 ELO points lower than they were when they left, uh, then we could you know, translate that somehow to the WTA ranking system and say, okay, Serena was number one when she left. Let's apply this penalty and say when she comes back, she is, for the purposes of seeding, she's number 22 or something. I, I don't know. I haven't done anything like running the numbers on that, but um, that feels about right to me. So if, if we could do that, then that seems to me a more defensible way of essentially taking away a seed from someone who, by most standards, has earned it. I mean, that, that's always the question for me, which you hinted at in what you just said, Carl, that like, if, if you are going to grant a seed to a returning player, then you're taking it away from somebody else. And maybe that somebody else is a player who wasn't really favored to make the round of 16 anyway. I mean, number 32 right now is <laughs> Mihaly Buzarnescu, actually, who I already mentioned at the outside of today's show. And I mean... Buzarnesco has earned a lot in the last year, but she's not someone you expect to see in the second week of Wimbledon. So it's certainly defensible to to kick her off the list in favor of Serena. But I would just like to have a consistent way of doing that. I mean, that's the the main thing that my article is pushing for is we got to get rid of the wildcard bias that, that gives advantages to not just home country players, but more popular players, even if they've deserved it like Serena has. And whatever we do, it has to be consistent because the, the way that so many of these decisions are made now, maybe this is, this is coming up about Serena because she's Serena and she's the greatest of all time. But Victoria Azarenka is in a really similar situation and she's pretty close to one of the greatest of all time. But, I mean, we weren't having these conversations that much um, a year ago when Victoria Azarenka came back for the grass court season. And I know there's plenty of reasons for that and I'm oversimplifying, but I, I just wanted to be consistent. I want players to know what they're getting into when they decide to take time off, if they do decide to go on maternity leave and hope to come back. And that should apply as much to like Anastasia Sevastovo or Magdalena Ribarakova as it should a Serena or Maria Sharapova. That's really all I hope for. Well, I urge everyone to read Jeff's article on this, which was really smart. And I also 
applaud Jeff for taking, I think, a more optimistic view here. My, my view is, who knows, maybe a listener of this podcast is someone who has some say over this or knows someone who has some say over the decision that the All England Club will make. I think Jeff is thinking either, hey, maybe the people who run all of tennis and can change this in a more systematic way are listening, or maybe people will listen and realize that Jeff should run all of tennis, which he probably should, and that we can get a better system that way. Either way, I'm all for systemic changes that give us more justice and more logic. Well, thank you for the endorsement. Uh, I'm afraid that running all of tennis would leave me well above my target number of annual meetings, which is zero. So, <laughs> Jeff, when you run tennis, you can decide on how many meetings to have. That's a good point. So, okay, I'll, I'll do that if, if somebody wants to make the call. I don't actually really have a phone, so that could be tricky. But you can, you can <laughs> call email me. me. I'll, I'll get in touch. Jeff. Call Carl. Yeah, then, then Carl can email me or we'll talk about it next week on the podcast and hash out what my offer will be. So uh, we've managed to go nearly three quarters of an hour on the WTA. So let's switch over to the men's side. And let's start with Ale- Alexander Zverev, who we talked about him a little bit last week. Um, we we had a bit of a discussion of what we thought his long-term potential was. And, and there's a lot to be optimistic about. I think Carl's a little more optimistic than I am. Um, Zverev ended up beating Dominic Team in the final in Madrid, which means he now holds three of the Masters titles right now, having won Rome last year and also won in Canada last year. Um, he didn't do the hardest work in winning this title because Dominic Team, who he defeated in the final, uh, did the really hard work of knocking out Rafael Nadal. Uh, but that all doesn't really matter when it comes down to who gets to take the trophy home. So... Carl, like I said, you were more optimistic last week about Zverev's long-term potential. Does does this week and this one additional Masters title change anything for you? I'm pretty blown away by how he blew away his opponents. He wasn't playing Diego Schwartzman or other great returners of all time, or you know, really great players of all time. Although Dominique Team gets has a deserved great rep on clay, but here are his breakpoint saved stats for the five matches. Zero out of zero, one out of one, zero out of zero, zero out of zero, zero out of zero. He <laughs> won more than 80% of first serve points in every match. He made more than 60% of first serves in every match. And he won more than 60% of second serve points in every match. He won every second serve point against the anti-Diego Schwartzman, John Isner, in the quarterfinal. He served so well. Now, this is Madrid, so it's not typical clay. And he was playing, other than team, some non-typical clay opponents, especially Isner in the quarters and Shapovalov in the semis. But still, that's a that's a pretty powerful showing. Yeah, it really is. Um, as you point out, Madrid is a bit different from other clay court events because of the altitude. We also had Kevin Anderson making a deep run, which is not something you say very often on clay. Uh, Shapovalov is based on what we've seen from him so far on tour. He's, I don't want to say one dimensional, but he's definitely a, a, a better server than average and a weaker returner than average. Um, and, and Zverev fits that bill a little bit too. I mean, this might be the ideal surface for him. Like he, he likes playing on clay. He's comfortable on clay. He can play defense, but he also has a big serve. So maybe he is, he was born to to win the decima in Madrid over the next 10 years. Um, 
what do you think then, Carl, about Dominic Team? I mean, he, he got this big win against Nadal. He, he looked like like the second best player on the surface, and then he couldn't do much against Zverev. I mean, do, does this change your attitude about Team being the, the second best player on clay right now? If Zverev is really coming into his own, which we're seeing some evidence of, I mean, if you take away Zverev's slam results, which is an enormous thing to take away and an enormous disappointment on his resume, but he is a young guy and Federer was disappointing at slams at this age. If you take away those results, Zverev is really coming into his own as the second best player who's who's playing tennis right now, whatever the surface. I mean, he's third best when Rafa and Federer are both playing and better than everyone else by a pretty big margin. And it looks like that's probably true on every surface right now. So I don't really necessarily take anything away from team, but I do say, hey, team is actually 24 years old. Team turns 25 in September. You love when I uh, point out that, you know, you got you to gotta round up. But I think it actually matters for these young guys at least a little bit. Zverev is improving at a much faster rate, or at least we can think he is. He's only 21, just turned 21. Um, team, I think, is 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 just as, is probably about as good on clay as we thought he was, about as good as he was last year, but he's not improving very quickly. I think we made a big deal last year out of how he beat Rafa at Rome, which is a tougher tournament to beat Rafa at than Madrid. But then the very next match, he lost to Djokovic 6-1, 6-love. He did a lot better against Zverev this week. So I, I don't really knock him too much for losing to Zverev, but I think it's possible that team having been really good on clay for a long time and also being much better on clay than other surfaces has maybe biased us a little toward, against realizing that Zverev just being really good overall means he's better than team on every surface, even team's best surface. Okay, so the, 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 the question then is, as it always is with tennis, how do we deal with these sort of triangle head-to-heads where we know that Zverev can beat, beat Team? I mean, he, he showed that pretty comprehensively yesterday. We know that Team can beat Nadal. Um, but on the other hand, we also know that Nadal can beat Zverev. And the last time they played, which was only a few weeks ago in Davis Cup, it was pretty lopsided. I mean, Nadal beats Zverev as badly as Zverev was beating everybody this week. So does that affect your analysis of, of Zverev at all, to know that I mean, on grass courts he, he's, he's beaten Federer, we know he can beat team on clay, but he, doesn't, he seems to be outplayed when he's facing Nadal on clay. No, I mean, it doesn't affect my analysis of anyone to know they're outplayed by Nadal on clay. I mean, <laughs> team, team beating Nadal at one match that's not at Roland Garros on clay doesn't really affect my opinion much either way either like early just a few weeks earlier they met in monte carlo and rafa won six love six two against team so no i think nadal the next time he plays verov on clay is going to be a big favorite because next time he plays anyone on clay he'll be the big favorite and i said before i think zverev is behind nadal and federer when those two are playing i'm not sure i believe that about nadal on every surface but i Definitely believe that about Nadal on clay. Yeah, that, that seems sensible. Um, one more thing I wanted to talk about with the Madrid results in just the last few weeks in general is we have Dominic Team, one of the best players on clay. We have Denis Shapovalov, who came out of nowhere. Maybe we should talk just about that, but we'll save that for a minute. Um, Shapovalov came out of nowhere to have this semifinal run in Madrid, basically his first 
experience in European clay. And we have Stefano Tsitsipas, um, another youngster who had a career best result on clay, making it to the final in Barcelona. What these three people all have in common is they all have one-handed backhands. And we've been hearing for, I don't know, a decade, maybe more, that the one-handed backhand is dying. Um, and these three guys not only are, are young, especially Shavavalov and Tsitsipas, but they're also having really good results on a surface that you don't always associate with one-handed backhands, especially these days when the, the prime one-handed backhand guy is Roger Federer. Um, do you think, Carl, that are we seeing a resurgence of the one-handed backhand? I mean, does, does this give you hope that it, it's not as dead as people have been saying it is? Yeah, I think anyone who's been saying it's dead has not been paying attention to some of the, the young guys. Uh, Tsitsipas is... A prime example, you mentioned Shapovalov. It's, you know, right now the rain has, well, as we're talking, the rain has come to a match between an older one-handed backhand guy, Cuevas, who's great on clay, and a younger one, Kecinato, who is has done basically everything he's accomplished on tour on clay. I, I used to have this sense that the one-handed backhand was a lot weaker on clay, and I think it does come from what you identified, which is, the this the Federer effect. We had this sense that Federer was weaker on clay. Federer had a one-handed backhand, ergo, ipso, I don't know, Latin, etc. But QED. But I think there were a few biases there. I, I think one is what we really meant is that Federer was weaker against Nadal. And he was weaker against Nadal on clay because Nadal could get to his backhand and his backhand was his weaker shot. Nadal dominates everyone on clay. Now, he dominated Federer more than you would expect on clay, granted. But it's just, I think there were a lot of factors coming into play there, including some specific characteristics of Federer's one-handed backhand relative to other one-handed backhands that made us make too big a deal of it. Just to give an example, I mean, Stan Wawrinka is a guy who's got a one-handed backhand that's very different from, from Federer's, and he's had some of his best results on clay. Richard Gasquet also a different one-handed backhand. Both of them able to handle balls up high, maybe a little better than Federer can. Also Philip Kohlschreiber, all other other guys in their 30s who have had some great results on clay throughout their careers. I think better able to handle balls up high and better able to generate a lot of topspin with their one-handed backhands. And those are both important characteristics on clay. Yeah, I think another factor is because the, the ball moves through the court a little slower on clay, it gives you a little bit more time to prepare. And uh, I'm not a coach, I'm not a tactician, but I, I feel like the one-handed backhand takes a little bit more time to prepare than a two-hander does, especially compared to the really compact two-handers of the Fanini and Manorino mold. So it might be that when you think of the majestic one-handers of Vavrinko or a Gasquet, like you've got to prepare for a, a, a split second or two longer to hit a shot like that. And playing on clay, especially playing on clay two meters behind the baseline like uh, Gasquet does, that gives you time to do that. I mean, you still have to deal with the the less predictable bounces on clay, but you do have a little more time to prepare that that, that big shot and generate all that topspin. Uh, so the, the potential is there. About Shapovalov, uh, I don't think anybody, including Dennis himself, expected to, to be there in the semifinals this week. 
Uh, I think if we've talked about him before, I'm not sure if we have, but if we have, it might have been to highlight the fact that he he profiles as a pretty one-dimensional serve guy. I mean, despite the the early success he's had on tour, uh, does this? I'll ask you the same question about him that I did about Zverev. Does, does this result uh, change your opinion of him at all, or do you think this is more of just a fluke? I mean, I think it continued to be a, a serve dominant performance, and he was playing. He, he also was not playing any of the great clay players, including, you know, he beat his countryman, Milos Raonic. He beat Kyle Edmund, who's had a pretty nice spring, but also isn't generally considered a clay specialist. Um, so, yeah, it I think it, it makes me feel better about his overall abilities and, and match play, th- that he's able to accomplish what he has. He's also, he just turned 19, and so that's he's now had in a 12 month period some really really good results uh most notably having reached a, di- a semifinal at a different masters the canada masters last year and then the round of 16 at the us open after qualifying so he's got he's got a lot of game for a 19 year old i think you found in the past that someone served dominant like him won't necess- isn't likely to improve his return that much. So I think that'll be the big challenge for him, especially with his one-handed backhand. Yeah, I would agree. And looking at what he's achieved by 19, there are some decent parallels to Nick Kyrgios, who, who is who prompted me to look into that, whether players' return games really would improve. So I've, I've thought more about that over the years and, and might have a more, uh, a more rigorous way of approaching it. So maybe I should go back into that uh, go back at that topic with Shapovalov in mind. Um, but yeah, the fact that what he's accomplished by 19 is is really impressive. And like I said, nobody saw this one coming at all. But as you say, it, it was a weird clay court event with, with his deep run and, and Kevin Anderson, I mentioned earlier, making the semifinals, which is pretty crazy. The one thing I wanted to mention, and I'm not sure whether this counts as analytical or not, or just pure geekiness, but there's a lot of crazy stuff happening right now with head-to-heads. And one of the ones was Shapovalov Edmund, who have now faced each other, I believe, five times in Shapovalov's tour career, which, as you said, Carl, is basically one year long. So I think I read Shapovalov has played fewer than 60 career tour-level matches, and five of them have come against Kyle Edmund. And they've been good matches. Yeah. And another crazy head-to-head thing is Dominic Team had played Kevin Anderson six times before they met uh, in Madrid this past week. And Anderson led the head-to-head 6 nothing, which granted was all, none of that was on clay, but it was 6 nothing, and Team turned that one around. So as my, my Austrian friend pointed out, nobody beats Dominic Team seven times in a row. Um, I bet and- someone will disprove that at some point, but yeah, so far. Probably. But also speaking of Dominic Team, he and Nadal have a pretty lengthy head-to-head already. I think they've played nine times, uh, something like that. And every single match has been on clay, which makes some sense. I mean, they're both best on clay, and both of them tend to, to lose a little bit earlier on, on hard courts. But still, given the number of tournaments they've, they've both played on other surfaces, you'd expect that to, to shake out differently. And the last crazy head-to-head thing that... 
I keep meaning to, to, to run the numbers on this to see just how rare this is, but John Isner and Ryan Harrison, I think they played in the first round this past week in Madrid. They were playing each other for the 10th time on tour. And I mean, there have been lots of 10 time head to heads on the ATP tour, but usually they're between players who are better. <laughs> Isner's, Isner's pretty Isner, good. Yeah, no, no slight to Isner. Yeah, but, but Harrison's not. And it's it, the fact that they face each other so much is almost purely because they play the same uh, hardcore tournaments in the U.S. every year. I mean, they've played, played a couple times outside of the U.S., including this Madrid tournament, and I think they played in Acapulco this year, uh, which is when I first noticed how, how rare that was. But for someone like Harrison, who has never been that good, hasn't had a lot of, of strong results, and is relatively young, I guess, still. Uh, that's a lot of matches against one player, although Edmund and Shapovalov pretty much blew that out of the water with their five matches in, in 50-something career matches for Shapovalov. So I don't have any any real topics to discuss there, but I keep <laughs> meaning to write articles about those, and I don't think I'm going to, so I might as well throw that throw those in there. Uh, by the way, Harrison is also 1-6 in six against Marin Cilic at tour hmm. level. And six and zero against Guillermo Garcia Lopez. Right. Yeah, that's that's a weird one. So, in just a few minutes before we wrap this one up, let's let's talk Rome. Um, on the men's side, let's start there. And we got to figure Rafael Nadal is a favorite as usual. Um, Carl, if somebody beats Nadal this week, who do you think it's going to be? Well, I'm tempted to say team because team is in the same quarter, so he has a pretty good chance of playing Nadal. Although team's second round opponent could, well, it's going to be Fonini or Monfils. Uh, Monfils just got beaten badly by Nadal, but I still think could give him a match. But Fonini has beaten him on clay before a couple of times. So uh, Fonini or team, whoever wins that, that match, I think has the best chance. Yeah, I would agree. And who do you think is the second favorite to win the tournament? I mean, I he's done it before. He's won twice in a row before. So I'll say Zverev, although Del Potro is also lurking and has a decent draw. So he'd be my close third favorite. I would love to see Del Potro do that. I was a bit disappointed that he... I mean, I guess he hasn't played that much on clay, but the fact that he lost that tight match to Leovich... Um, that's yeah. that was a bit of a letdown. I mean, given given how the the matches were playing out in Madrid, I feel like if he had pulled out that tiebreak, he could have easily been in the final, but it was not to be. Um, women's side, like I mentioned earlier, this was uh, Svitolina's tournament last year. She beat Halep in the final, so Svitolina's been a little bit out of the picture lately. I mean, she she's had a a, a pretty solid season, but um, but. She's been outshone, I guess, by some of the other ladies. Um, What's your pick there, Carl? Well, I just heard one of the smartest tennis analysts I know talk about how Simona Halep is basically a given on clay. So I'm going to go with her, although I'd be a little afraid of that first match against Naomi Osaka. Yeah, I I was not thrilled when I saw that draw come out. Um, And it was going to be Azarenka if it wasn't Osaka, so tough either way. Yeah, that's that's pretty brutal. Um, yeah, you know, I as much as I would caution you not to trust that tennis analyst too much, um, Halep does seem like the odds-on pick. 
I part of me thinks Svitolina is going to defend this. Just I feel like she's due a little bit. We know she can play well on this surface. Uh, I hope she doesn't win. But then again, if if she has to win this in in order for Simona to beat her at Roland Garros, I'm okay with that. Um, what about what about this second round match between Karolina Pliskova and probably Kiki Burton's? What do you think is going to happen there, Carl? I I think. Burton's. I think Pliskova had a nice run in Madrid, but that Rome is going to play more to Burton's uh, overall clay court game, which we talked about at length last week. We did, and I wish I, I had thought about this before we started recording, just to look at week-by-week week, uh, ELO ratings, but I was struck that I think Burton's gained another spot or two in the, the clay court ELO ratings. She's basically second second or third behind Halep. I, as I, were, I was saying earlier, Serena and Sharapova muck things up a little bit because they're still rated very high. So so they're they're higher on paper. But um, Burton is basically a top three player right now on clay, which is, I mean, it's just crazy. Um, but I, I did watch a couple of her matches this past week thinking about our discussion last week. And it, it did strike me how... In, in a way, she's a very good defensive player, but as I told you on via email, Carl, um, she was playing very good defense, but it was just barely good enough for clay. Like, I think the same kind of defense wouldn't translate to hard courts. Like, she was very good at keeping the ball in play and hitting shots that were just good enough to keep herself in the point, um, which, I mean, that's all you have to do on clay. And But that would, ex- if I'm right in that, that she would, that her defense works on clay courts but it just leaves herself open to be destroyed on the next shot on hard courts that would explain the discrepancy that we see in her overall results and elo ratings uh but but yeah i i would agree i think if i'm right about that then that's going to give give uh burton to the edge on the slower clay in rome and maybe plushka was tired i don't know but burton's could be tired too Jeff, just to, I, I think I understand, but just to close the loop of, of your logic there, why is it that a shot, a defensive shot that can be, how can a defensive shot be just good enough on clay and not on a different surface? Well, it, it, part of it's just that um, clay gives you a little more time to get back in position. So if, if you do lunge and hit a slice backhand to back up the middle of the court you have that extra split second to to get yourself back in a position to deal with the next one uh another factor that i wait sorry why do you why do you have a split second longer oh because the ball takes a little bit longer to bounce um okay so it's from the time from the bounce to the player plus their position is probably further back yeah i think so um and the other factor is, I guess, if again because of the surface and, and and the bounce, and presumably Burton's having being a little more comfortable with her footwork on clay, um, she's going to get to that ball a split second faster. So what we see as a sort of mediocre defensive shot, it might be even worse on hard courts. So I didn't spell that out, but I think I think the margins are are really small in what I'm talking about, but it might be enough to explain the difference. That's that's, that's my theory for now. That's interesting because what I was thinking was on clay, you get back this mediocre ball that can be attacked, but the same attacking ball on clay is less likely to finish the point because of the nature of the bounce of that shot. So I was, I guess I was thinking the shot after it. Um, and that's a, that's a factor too. I think I didn't see a lot of points where Burton seemed to be chasing after more than one or two shots in a row, which is what 
what your version would imply. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. This is this is all kind of seat of the pants, and I, I I'm not sure I'm explaining the like I'm not sure that my theory explains the the effect well enough, or else we we'd see more players with really big gaps between their uh, clay and hardcore performances. Well, if Burton's wins the big match we're projecting her to reach, which is she hasn't reached it yet, if I'm reading the draw correctly, then we can learn more from from the charting of that match. Yep, I'll look forward to your chart, Carl, of Plishkova Burton's. Me too. Yeah. Jeff, what was the big charting milestone? I think we should be sure to mention it before we wrap this. We should, and actually we have two as of, of maybe 12 hours ago or so. Um, the the one that you're mentioning that you want me to bring up is the fact that we have the complete set of men's grams Grand Slam finals. Um, the goal was back to 1980, so that's that's the big milestone. Um, but I actually did for all the, the match 19- charting project. The credit, sorry, just to explain what we're talking about for people who are just tuning in. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, for for the match charting project, which is my effort to crowdsource the the charting of historical and current matches and get point by point, shot by shot stats for for the extent of every match. So what we've got is is that shot-by-shot log for every men's Grand Slam final going back to 1979. So it's 156 Slam finals in a row, um, which is pretty huge. We've been working on that for a long time. And Edo Savazzi, who's uh, translating tennis analytics into Italian and a huge uh, a, a huge supporter of the match training project. This was really his baby from years ago, I think now. Um, he did a ton of the 80s and 90s slam finals, and he did the the marathon 87 Roland Garros final, and I think that's Lendl Vlander that that got us within one. So I mean, it's a, a huge accomplishment for us as a group, but also for for Ado, who's been such a driving force behind it. And we're also about 10% of the way, about 10% from being finished with women's slam finals as well but most of the ones were well all the ones we're missing where we don't have video for them so it's not a matter of not being able to do the work it's just a matter of not being able to find video that will allow us to do the work and i think that given how much less archive video there is for women's tennis back in the 80s um i'm not super optimistic that we're going to be able to find all those but even what we have the 90 percent of the slam finals back to 1980 is still quite valuable and, and better than I ever thought we'd go. Um, and the, the last the last milestone that, like I said, just happened in the last 12 or 24 hours is we have 2,000 uh, men's matches now. Wow. Uh, including most of Federer's finals now and most big four meetings and, like I said, all the Grand Slam finals. So 2,000 matches, and I think we're 51 matches away from also hitting 2,000 for women. If we really focus on women's matches, we can get more women's than men's. You know, one thing on your on your post that really struck me is before the late 1970s, video quality and availability decreases sharply. If there's a listener out there who can prove that wrong, please let us know. That would be incredible. If if there's some stash someone has of of tapes that they're excited now to digitize and share because of this project, I mean, that would just be incredible. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm I am curious what all's out there. Since every once in a while something new crops up out of nowhere, uh, there, there's a few YouTube channels that I follow that looks like people are slowly digitizing collections, um, and I I really hope that people do a better job of of digitizing whatever women's archival footage there is out there because uh, there there's a 
huge amount of, of video from men's matches in the 80s and a little bit from the, the mid to late 70s. But uh, the further back you go, the, the more disproportionately men it is. And I, I would like to correct for that as much as possible, at least within the, the range of what the match charting project can do. That would be really exciting. Yes. So thank you for bringing that up, Carl. It's important to um, keep everybody excited about the project. I know some listeners overlap with some of our most prolific charters. And as always, I really appreciate everyone's efforts in that direction. So on that note, let's wrap things up for this week in episode 25. Carl, thank you as always for joining me. My pleasure, Jeff. Thank you everyone for listening. And if all goes well, we will see you next week.